huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Now, this is something completely new. I always want to disrupt you and the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. Don't want you to kind of uh, be able to predict what's going to happen if you like. So I'm going to share with you a live event. Now, this was a private event for 270 of our best customers, something that I wasn't planning on sharing outside of this, you know, our best 270 customers who probably, I don't know, spent 40 or 50,000 pounds each with us. So it was purely for them only originally. But we got such great feedback on it. I thought that you'd really value kind of having a, um, a voyeuristic view, if you like. So in about one minute's time, I'm going to take you to that live event. Now, Dr. John Damartini has reached nearly 4 billion people across the planet in his teachings over the last 44 years in sort of human behavior. He's one of the very few genuine polymaths. Now, I'm, I'm bigging him up, but actually this talk isn't uh, from him. But his talk is in the top five most downloaded podcasts of My Disruptive Entrepreneur. And we'll certainly be doing a lot more work with him in the future. So uh, just keep your um, ears and eyes peeled for that. But we, we, did, we both did a keynote speech at this very private event in Peterborough. And my content was on the formula for wealth that I designed. Now, this formula for wealth that I designed, which is W equals V plus FE times L, has opened a lot of doors for me. Now, when I say I designed it, I didn't design the monetary system. I'm not, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that much of a, an ego maniac. But it's a system I developed through going from being very poor to doing well financially and and reading hundreds of books on money and wealth and sort of economics, if you like, and adapting some of my mentors' teachings and trainings. And um, it's a quite unique formula, but it's proven every time to build both you and your customers, clients and the people you serve sustainable wealth. So it merges selfless and selfish. And it balances kind of material and spiritual. It balances kind of covering your own heads and, and philanthropic causes. And it's actually quite a simple formula. And I think when, when, I, when I detail it for you, you, you should get some aha moments. Now, I spent an hour in this talk digging into the depths of it. And I go into a lot about technology on the leverage part and a lot about self-worth on the fair exchange part. So it's probably the, the, the deepest talk on the formula I've ever done. Now, one of the earliest podcasts I did in the first like eight episodes was a formula for wealth. But interestingly, it's probably about my, it's probably in the bottom 25% of downloaded podcasts on my podcast series. And I found that really interesting because, hey, if anyone said to me, hey, Rob, I've got the formula for wealth, I'd be all over it. That'd be the top one. So I was quite surprised. So I thought it's worth drilling into a lot more detail about the formula for wealth. 
And just to give you an idea of kind of the reach of this, an African nation invited me to speak at their national conference with all the heads of policies and states and prime ministers and everything else on this formula and how that could help the, the, the monetary system, their economy. I turned it down and for reasons I'll share with you, uh, maybe when we uh, meet sometime. I also got invited to do the Secret Millionaire TV show, which is a huge show in, um, in England where you know, multimillionaires get invited to kind of go undercover. I turned it down for, for reasons that I'll share with you later, and it's not because I'm not a millionaire. And then I also got invited to do a TV show for Channel 5 called How the Other Half Live. I turned it down for reasons I'll share with you later. But this wealth formula has opened a lot of doors for me. But more importantly for me is it's helping a lot of other people create wealth and strive that balance. So anyway, long enough intro, let's get straight in. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, hey, me on the formula for wealth. Am I turned on? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so they say, don't they? They that money doesn't buy happiness. (laughs) Fucking does! And I just wanted to get that one out there early. (laughs) Now, many of you know Progressive many years, and you've followed the work of myself and then Dr. John and Mark Homer. Could you just show me your hand if you've been involved with the Progressive community, say, let's say six months or more? Okay, great. And can you show me your hand if you have done some form of training or reading on something progressive related? Okay, great. So that's nearly all of you. All right, because I wanted to be very clear about what today was about and not about. And what it isn't about is everything we've taught you so far about property. That's not the purpose of this, because it's a complete one-off. It's not easy to get a global superstar like Dr. John to come to Peterborough. <laughs> That's not easy. <laughs> as soon as we got out of London, I was looking in the, in the wing mirror, and he was getting very nervous. <laughs> There's no buildings. <laughs> and it's not easy. So this is probably not going to happen again in this format ever. So I wanted it to be something memorable to you and to cover information that A, is the most relevant to everyone in the room, regardless of where you've come from, and B, it be something different. So the brief that I am taking on myself and then Dr. John's going to carry on is business, money, and finance. And we were very clear about that in the communities. Business, money, and finance. That's what we're going to talk about for this half a day session. Now, of course, it supersedes property. Because if you've got no business, finance, and money knowledge, you're not going to be able to manage a portfolio. So it will be directly linked to everything you've ever done or you want to continue to do in property. But I just wanted to make that really clear from the start. Now, unusually for me, I don't have long, and I'm only going to have one thing that I'm going to share with you. And it is a formula for wealth. (laughs) And I reckon it'll take me 30 to 60 minutes to cover this in the detail that will give you implementable strategies. And by the way, as we go through this, I'll happily take some questions. Also, after we've finished our sort of delivery of information, uh, Dr. John and I are going to come back and we're going to do an open Q&A between us. So any questions you've got, if you don't get answered in this 45 minutes, you can ask us at the end of the session. So I created this formula for wealth 
but for sure I borrowed some of the best bits from some of my mentors. And in fact, the middle part is borrowed from a lot of Dr. John's work. Because I always used to call it E. But the, the addition of F, uh, I think, took this formula to the next level of it being relevant and um, systematic and automatic. So V stands for value. What's the word? Value. value. F stands for, FE stands for fair exchange, and L stands for leverage. Now, what I'll first do for your benefit is I'll show you how if you have one, two, one or two of the three, you don't get wealth in a sustainable way or a scalable way. And um, of course, wealth can be many things, and money is only one facet of wealth. But just for the sake of being able to talk about these things openly and you don't get a chance to do that much, I'm going to talk about money specifically. Because there's not many rooms you can go to with 159 other like-minded people where you get to talk about money and there's minimal judgment on you. You know, if you're at work, you can't talk about what someone earns. And if you're with your friends and you say, oh, you know, how much do you earn? You'll probably get a pint chucked over you. And so I wanted to use this opportunity just to gratuitously, shamelessly, and passionately talk about money. Cool. All right then. So if you have value, i.e. you have something that the world or your locality or your nation values, then you've got something that you could turn into money. There's latent money in value. Now there's latent money in everything. Let's say you can play a guitar really well. If you're better than most people on the planet at that, there's latent money. You just haven't found a way of monetizing it yet. So if you have value, great. And you have leverage, which is value to more people, but there's no exchange, you don't have any money. And there's a lot of people, artists I know because I used to be one, and creativity types, or really just anyone who's not really making any sustainable income, they haven't got an exchange, i.e. not enough money. So something valuable, something leverageable, but no exchange equals no sustainable wealth. Let's look at it the other way. Let's say you've got value, the, the universe wants what you've got, whether it's one person or seven billion. You've got some fair exchange, i.e. there's a fee, but you've got one customer. Then you have no sustainable and scalable wealth. And I use the word sustainable carefully because anyone can make money for minutes, hours, days or weeks, but can you do it for years, decades and even have the next generation continue to grow your wealth? So that's where leverage comes in. Let's say you've got exchange, so you've got money going, you've got a fee, you've got leverage, lots of them, but you're not giving value. Well that's actually one of the quickest ways to go broke, is to scale a bad service or product or idea. So you need all three to have scalable and sustainable wealth. 
And since I created this formula, which incidentally, uh, an African country, um, they were having their uh, national summit, and one of the members of their government, parliament, invited me to speak at their conference on their policy for wealth. Now, I turned it down because they don't run any world golf championships in that country. At that time, they wanted me to speak, and I won't really travel. Well, I definitely won't travel without my family or, you know, being able to merge passion and profession. So, one country sees this as a valuable model for wealth, and I hope you'll see the same. Okay, so now let's get into the detail of it. What is value? Anyone want to share what you think value is? Now, actually, just as you're thinking what value might be, I didn't want to complicate it too much, but there should be a brackets P there. So, what is value? Service. Yeah, product or service, which does what? Solves a problem, yeah. Serves, solves, speeds. So you have a product, service, or idea that serves someone, solves them a problem, or speeds up, makes something easier, faster, better, that's value. Serves, solves, or speeds. Easier, faster, better. Now, what, what could P stand for? Perceived. Perceived, indeed. Why perceived? Sorry to get you to think at 9.30 in the morning. Most of you have just come back from your night out and you haven't had any sleep. It's normally what happens in Peterborough. Yes, David, what's um, perceived? Uh, what may be valuable to you may not be valuable to somebody else. Yes. So perceived, perception, an individual reality of reality, i.e. not a global reality, an individual reality, which isn't a reality. It's just a view of reality. Now, why is that P in the value proposition important? Because everybody's different. Yes, because everybody's different, for sure. Yes? Because you may need to get them to see value. Yes. Now, I would, I would suggest it's harder to get someone to see value and easier to give them something they already see value in. Okay. Because if you're trying to get someone to see the value in what you've got, that's called selling. And that's fine, but that's push selling. Whereas if, conversely, someone sees value in it already, that's pull selling, i.e., please can I buy your products and services because I see value in them. So whilst neither are right or wrong, now what most startup businesses, mom and pops, or people who've got a passion that they want to turn into profession, the thing they mostly do wrong is they go, I love baking macaroons. And I'm so passionate about baking macaroons, and I know everybody on the planet wants to pay me for macaroons. Now, you think I've chosen that randomly. I haven't, because someone in my podcast asked me about how to scale their macaroon business. <laughs> and I hadn't had that kind of question before, and it, it piqued my interest. <laughs> Is Gary in the room? Gary, you sent me a private message. Yes, yeah, so Gary sent me a private message of this macaroon tower, and like the, the biggest macaroon manufacturer on the planet, just to prove to me. <laughs> But the point is, you could have a passion about something that there is no demand for in your locality, nation, or globally. And that's, in a way, that's kind of insane. Now, of course, there's always an argument, isn't there, that if you're passionate about something, there's always going to be a market for it. But that's why I say you've got to um, merge the two. You've got to be aware, you've got to balance. Aware of what you've got passion and interest in, but aware that there's a market for it that will allow you to scale. Now, of course, this is all intrinsically linked to how much you want to scale. 
Because if you want three and a half thousand pound a month and you still want to live in your one bed flat in Peterborough, you can make your macaroons out of your flat and you can serve a few people in Peterborough and you can have a nice cosy regional business. But as soon as you want to scale county, country and, and wider, then you have to take more into consideration the demand. So perceived value is something that you've got, product, service, idea, passion, that enough of a market for you to sustain your overhead needs or wants. That's what I'd say value is. Now, many, show me a hand in, in the room if you're interested at some point or already deal packaging, selling deals to others. Nice and high. Okay, so value becomes really important. How do you increase value? Yes? Find out what people actually want. Yes. So what, the best way to do it is to find out what people want. In my opinion, the best way to do it, there are more than one ways. Find out what people want and iterate or pivot your product or service to give them what they want. It's also called crowd sourcing. Now, business can be risky. You can take on overhead. You know, you've got mortgages that you might have personal guarantees on. Business can be risky. So if you want to completely de-risk business and wealth, this is what you do. You ask people what they want. You listen to them. You get your own suggestions and ego out the way. You take feedback and you create your product, service or idea around what the majority of your demographic want, then you give it to them. Now, by the way, that's also a great launch or marketing model. If I went, hey, I've got a book that you've never heard of, I've got to convince you that you need that book. But if you help me choose the title and the subtitle, now you know what's happening in the community. If you've helped me choose the title and the subtitle three months ago and I've put some chapters on and you give me feedback and all of a sudden this book comes out and part of what you wanted in a book is in the title and subtitle, not only will you buy it because you know you want it, but you'll feel like you were part of the creation of it. And so then you'll go and tell other people about it because you've bought into the process of it. That's called, there's a name for it, Silicon Valley call anything everything. That's called crowdsourcing. And you know, I think four or five hundred of you have given me some feedback on the subtitle of my next book, Money. Now someone actually went, Rob, you should go with your intuition. You know, you should value your intuition. What do you think is the best title? Well, I think the best title for me is the title that inspires the most people that I want to buy the book to buy the book. Now, here's the challenging part of this. So I need to sit on another seat. Because <laughs> this is the challenging part. What happens when they all pick the one you hate? <laughs> now, the one most of you have picked is money. Make more, grow more, give more. That's my least favorite. You bastards. <laughs> so now I've got a conflict between self and others. So you'll see how that conflict pans out when I launch the book. <laughs> I think you'll all, you'll all know how this will go. Okay, so any questions on value before we move on? Great. Now, is value a constant? No, of course it's not. We were having a great long discussion uh, in the car coming down about Uber. Now, 10 years ago, there would have been no value in that. Before the internet, there's no value in something that leverages the internet. 
And now Uber is one of the most disruptive global and highly capitalized businesses on the planet. So value iterates, pivots, changes over time. And that is the best recession proof or future proof anyone could ever give you. It's the best personal guarantee anyone could ever give you. That when things change, that's your biggest opportunity. Now, let's use the analogy of Uber. You're either going to be Uber or you're going to be the black cab driver. Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be involved in strikes, holding on with dear life to a model that's going out of date? Or do you want to be the disruptive people who are leveraging leverage and getting money at the speed of light? The second one. It was a rhetorical question, I assumed. <laughs> but I know we're just putting it out there. Rob, I'd just like to let you know I choose number two. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now, I'm going to part this for a minute. But I guess still talking about it is if you want business models that give you sustainability, scalability, and vast wealth, I recommend networked business models. So the network concept, or the network phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, is a model which, uh, when, it, when it goes big and global, it completely disrupts what was previously done. A model that networks and connects the, you know, the whole planet. And in the future, it's going to be intergalactic, with Virgin Galactic and Elon Musk's SpaceX. So probably one of the early network models was rail. Because if you wanted to send something, it went about as fast as a pigeon or a horse, you know, back in whatever, a couple of centuries ago. And rail brought the whole globe closer together. Because instead of it being four, six, I don't know what the speed of a horse is, what horsepower is, I don't know, it's 20 odd, 30 miles an hour, I don't know. All of a sudden it was 100 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour, 500 miles an hour. So rail connected more people more quickly. Then we had air travel, which did it even quicker. Then we had telecommunications, which did it even quicker. Then internet, leveraging fiber optic, which is speed of light. So now we have speed of light connectivity across the globe, which is going to be really exciting when we talk about L. Because anyone who says, oh, business is hard, there's so much competition, there's so much noise, there's so much distraction, I'm spending all my day on Facebook, wah, wah, wah. Anyone seen Pingu? Where he goes, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> they're, not, they're not seeing the leverage, the speed. Like, I don't want to sound like it was hard for me back then, but when Mark and I set up property, and say, for example, we were doing our first ever event. We actually had to work to get people in the room. Phone them up and shit. <laughs> you know, that old-fashioned stuff, using the phone. And now many of you, you're setting up a Facebook page. You're making comments in Progressive and other communities. You're filling your own events and selling your own business, leveraging our community, which leverages Facebook, which leverages fiber optic, which leverages the internet. So it's like leverage on leverage on leverage on leverage of the network concept. And the more you embrace that, <laughs> that might be Zuck, my mate, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> the more you leverage that, the quicker you can grow and scale your business. Tell mum I'm all right, yeah? It's not you, is it? Not me. Oh, all right, whatever. Okay, so I find this unbelievably inspiring and exciting. And part of my speech today was hopefully to transmute that into you. All right, cool. So that's perceived value. Then we have fair exchange. 
something I've seen both sides of. Now, because I'm sure if you've read um, some of Dr. John's work and some of mine, you'll realize we both subscribe to the concept of balance rather than extremes. Rather than manic depressive, you know, we subscribe to balance in every equation. And so it is with fair exchange. So let's define unfair exchange either extreme. What's unfair exchange at either extreme? Sorry? Yes. So what most people see as unfair exchange is rip off. You know, pay too much and not get enough value. But the other side of the balanced equation is not charging enough and giving too much. And so a fair pricing model. Now, all of you are deal packages, all of you are rent to renters, all of you that are even letting your property or HMOing, all the things that I know every single one of you in this room are doing. Your dichotomy, your challenge, you know, what you're trying to balance is what's a fair exchange? If the rent's too high, you get voids. If the rent's too low, you don't get cash flow. So you're looking for fair exchange. But you now have a model to increase your income, more value. So closer to town, better amenities, better appliances, you know, the higher end boutique HMOs will increase your ability to price up. But it's still fair exchange because there's a higher price, but you're getting more for it. And by the way, there are a lot of people, many of whom you may not know yet, who don't want cheap shit. And then look at your price and go, that's too cheap, therefore it's shit, therefore I'm going to go and buy this bigger yacht. If you went in the inflatable dinghy shop, you ain't seeing Roman Abramovich there having a little snoop. Ooh. No, you're not. Well, at least I haven't. You're not even seeing him in the Sunseeker boat shop because he wants a bespoke one built that's bigger than the biggest one that's ever been built. Now, there's higher margin in the higher price products. But of course, what's the flip side? Because there's always a flip side. Lower volume. So there's something you've got to trade off. Okay, so here's what happens if you're out of balance. You charge a price and you don't give the value. What happens? You don't get repeat business. Yeah, what else? Bad press, bad reputation. You have problems you have to solve, and what do all those things erode? Your profit margin. So here's something we've all done. Now I can think of a few times when I've done this. We have this moment where we have a customer in front of us, and we have a need for money. But we have this sixth sense that this customer is going to cause us some problems. But what's stronger? Probably the need for money. But what we're only seeing is the cash flow and not the margin. So we take the money and we, we, we have a negative profit margin because the amount of work we have to do to please the customer exceeds the margin of profit and goes into negative. So if you want to go bust the quickest, then take a load of problem clients because you need money. <laughs> Some weird scenarios going on here at the moment. So, if there is a challenging customer or there's more work in satisfying the customer, what do you have to do? The Up the price. Now, what's the best way to get rid of them? Up the price. So, if you want to test your ability to go and speak for a fee, or if you're running a property training event or someone wants to pay you for your services and you're not sure, here's what you do. You immediately give them a, a very high price. Because it's either no, which means 
that was the most polite way of not transacting. Or if they say yes, you hide your surprise. <laughs> you don't give a yes! Get in! I remember actually when Mark and I were mentored by James Kahn for the first time. You know James Kahn from Dragon's Den. And then we went to, to see him to cut a deal where he'd be our mentor and also come and speak at the Property Super Conference. Because he was like God back then to us. Him, Lord Sugar, you know the Dragon's Den people when Dragon's Den was massive. This would have been in 09 before the 010 Super Conference. So whilst Mark and I were doing well, you know, we, we weren't by any means at the scale we were. We went in, we saw him and we were so excited and nervous and we were like two little kids. And we walked out and we'd done the deal and we were like yes and we hugged and I looked up and I saw James Kahn looking down the window at us. <laughs> I'm surprised I think he probably doubled his fee since then so yeah so hide the surprise so here's the thing you have to be very careful in understanding the difference between cash flow and sustainable profit margin so you probably need to up your prices now, how do you justify upping your prices? You increase the perceived value. Now, a lot of people are very scared about putting up their prices. Why? What do they, what do they um, have an illusion will happen? They'll lose all their customers. Okay, so I'd like to set you a little challenge if that's okay. Show me how if that's okay. Great. The challenge is this. Whatever you sell your products, services, or ideas, Bang the prices up by about 20%. Unless I'm your buyer, of course. 50%. 50%, yeah. Thanks for the feedback. Put it on the form at the end. <laughs> so, what most people think will happen is they will have no customers. What normally happens in my experience, though of course it's always an exception to every rule and you're smart and you know that, is the following. The 10 or 20% rough numbers of their clients who want a tenner for a fiver go, how much? You what? Fuck off! That's how they say it in Peterborough. <laughs> and ultimately, you may lose them. But they are your customers that are stressing your overhead. Because your customer service department that you have to pay is not there solving the problems of your best customers who aren't bothering you. So if you've ever read Pareto Law, Pareto Principle, 80-20, whatever, and you really get used to that rule. Now, I wrote a lot about it in Life Leverage, but I've studied it a lot. Richard Koch, I listened to an audio CD of his about 10 years ago. I've been studying 80-20 Principle. And what you generally find is, if we follow that, whether it's 75-25, 80-20, 85, 15, whatever. 20% of your customers will cause you 80% of your overhead cost, i.e. pain, customer service, refunds, blah, blah, blah. All these things increase your overhead. Now, when you up your prices, they're the ones you lose. So you immediately increase your profit margin. And then when you've lost them, all the people sitting over here going, I'd buy that, but I don't want to be associated with those people, or I'd buy that, but I don't want to be associated with those low prices, all of a sudden you start finding them, but you can't see them because you've been repelling them because your pricing's been wrong. And this is a magical and powerful concept. And I need to challenge you to do it because I know most people would have a fear that that wouldn't happen. But again, I want to stress, there's a major difference between cash flow and margin.
Margins was left, and that's the important figure. Net profit margin. So give it a go. And then not only will you lose those 20% that cost you the 80%, but you'll free room to then have new customers who pay more money. Now those who've got HMOs, you'll know one bad tenant, what does that turn into? Eight empty rooms. Forgive me for shouting at you, I often get into rant mode. <laughs> this seminar's gonna become a rally. <laughs> Okay, fair exchange then. Now, as an artist, I struggled with this because I, in my naive model of the world, thought that if I charge too much, people would perceive it's not worth it or it's a rip-off or I'm not worth it or whatever. So, it is very true to say, and those, who was at MSOPR this weekend? Okay, great. Quite a cushy little number for you. Arrive on Friday, stay through till this. Now, a lot of people say your network is your net worth. And whilst I completely agree with that, I think it goes deeper. And I would argue your self-worth is your net worth. And being an artist, I've experienced it personally. My art was at its cheapest when my confidence was at its lowest. And my art was at its best pricing, although it was never anywhere near enough, when my confidence was at its highest point. And here's the thing, when I'd, I'd buy some canvases, and I'd know what they cost per canvas, and I'd buy some oils, you know, some terps or whatever to thin it. And so I might do a meter by meter canvas that might be, for, it might cost 85 pounds, and in my mind, I couldn't get it above 500 quid as a fee, as a price. Because I'm looking at, eight, call it 100 quid rounding up, charge it five times as much, that's 500% gross margin. I didn't know what gross margin was back then, but you know, that's ultimately how you could look at it. Here's what I didn't factor in. The agent, well I didn't have one, so that's why I didn't know about it, but if I wanted to scale, I'd need an agent. And I mean, the football agents uh, get 10 or 15 million pound for a big deal, the Paul, Paul Pogba agent. I think he made 12 million pound out of the um, deal, Paul Pogba to Man United. So there's an agent you've got to have. Then the gallery can get anywhere between 40 and 60%. So all of a so you take cost of sales off, which is the, uh, top, the top part of your balance, sorry, top part of your profit and loss statement, if you, if you read them and have them. So 495 minus 40 to 60%, minus agent fees might leave 180 quid. Then you've got my heating, electricity, food, mortgage, everything else. But more importantly, and I'm sure you can relate to some of this, Michael, you're an artist, aren't you? Yeah? Never mind, mate. That's why I return back to profit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now, this is what they don't teach you in art school or in any creative thing. Because creation without commercialism is just a hobby. And that's all right if you want it to be a hobby. But even a hobby has overheads. Got to pay for your car, guitar, pay for your strings, pay for your petrol to get to the gig, pay for the hospital bills and get beaten up, you know, all these things <laughs> that you've got to pay for. So everything has an overhead. All right, now, it reminds me of a, a story from Picasso. How long have I been going? About half an hour? Yeah, all right, great, cool. Now, um, over the years in business, maybe, um, getting better results, A, but certainly being Mark Homer's business partner, I've become a bit more skeptical. 
And I remember when I first heard this, yes. Uh, I remember when I first heard this story, I was quite skeptical of it, and I uh, did some research on it, Googled it, and looked at the source. And whilst there were slightly different versions of this story, to my research and knowledge, this story was true, and it surprised me. And uh, I think I might have wrote about it in Life Leverage. And there was, there's not many artists in their lifetime that have made a lot of money. Most of them, like Van Gogh or whoever, you know, it all goes worth stupid money when they're dead. And that, you know, that's, that, that wasn't the kind of artist I wanted to be, but that was the kind of artist I'd have ended up being. And it's about Picasso, who was in a cafe in France, and uh, quite famously he used to be quite public, whereas obviously some famous people aren't. He was famous at the time, he was a very successful artist. He was in a cafe and a lady approached him. And she recognized him and was a bit starstruck. And she said, oh, can you draw something? And there was a napkin on the table. And he did a quick sketch. I guess then it would have been with a pencil. And signed it and pushed it forward. And then there was that awkward moment where he's looking at her like, what are you going to pay me? And she's looking at him like, I hope I don't have to pay you. <laughs> and I don't know why I chose a man to do that example. <laughs> and. So after the silence, she said, okay, so how much? And he went 5,000 francs without flinching. Of course, she reacted and was shocked. 5,000 francs, that took you a few minutes. And he went, no, that took me my whole life. And this is what I wasn't measuring in my worth and therefore in my prices as an artist. Now, if you'd have been with me when I was three years old, I used to draw peregrine falcons and birds of prey out of a book. And even when I was three, I could draw like an eight-year-old. By the way, I don't tell this to impress you because I failed as an artist. So it's kind of unimpressive. And then, um, you know, when I was old enough to start supporting football teams, I used to get the match of the day and I used to copy and draw the teams. Sorry, I'm a Liverpool fan, I know. You're a Chelsea fan, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. You're a Chelsea fan, aren't you? <laughs> I'm going to need a bouncer now. <laughs> and um, and uh, at GCSE, now art is the most subjective subject, I'd argue. How do you mark someone higher than someone else at art? But at GCSE, I got 100%. And no one in that year in the whole country got 100%. So much so that they created an award at the, an award at the school in memory of me getting 100%. Then at A-level, my life sort of spiraled a bit. I had a bad motorbike accident. I spent the second year in and out of hospital. My sister's in the room. She'll remember that. And... Uh, I sort of, I had to drop German, A, because I didn't have the time to, to study three things anymore, and B, what was I going to do with German? Um, and I didn't have time to complete my coursework for art, so what I did was I got my GCSE work, and I changed the mount board to a different colour, and I resubmitted my GCSE to A-level, assuming and hoping that it wouldn't be the same examiner, which it wasn't, and I got 98% on my GCSE work, which I was drawing when I was 12, 13 and 14, before the age of 15. And yet I completely failed at it. And that's what, that, that whole life story I was not putting into my prices as an artist. And that was manifested through a low self-worth. So if you increase your self-worth, you increase your net worth. It's the added benefit. You don't even have to study money to make more money, although if you study money, you'll make more money. But if you increase your self-worth, you'll increase your net worth. Because you'll feel more worth things, therefore you'll be more able to confidently charge for things. And you'll say no to customers and prices that are beneath your value. And there won't be an inner conflict of saying no, because you know you're worth more. Show me your hand if this is making sense. 
and I've gone on a crazy journey doing this, going from art to property. Now, if I was an artist now, I'd do it very different. Like, you'd all paint it for me. <laughs> I'd just give you a little vision. I'd be like, oh, we're going to create a global art collaboration. We're going to be the Uber of artists. It needs to look something like this. I've done my crowdsourcing research of all the art everyone wants, quickly in a few communities. You're all going to do it. We'll share the money, although I'll have most of it because I'm worth more. <laughs> we'll get an agent to sell it. We'll leverage the internet and all these social media networks. That's, that's how I play the art game now. And then what I'd also do is some of my own paintings, and they'd be like a million or two million or five million or ten million, and it wouldn't be rand, it'd be pounds. <laughs> and it definitely wouldn't be rupees. And that's, I'd play a very different art game now. Now, of course, some people would accuse me of being capitalist and commercial and consumer, but I can't serve more people unless I am. I actually think capitalist, capitalism as a system is good. I mean, the free market is great. Ultimately, everyone has a, a fair share and chance to set up a business, and all of our com competition against each other keeps it as fair as it can be. There are only five non-capitalist states in the whole of the world. And because people think capitalism is greed. I'd argue communism is more greedy for a few. I'd argue. Hey, look, that's my view. I might be right, I might be wrong. But what is it, 140, 160 countries, I don't know, and only five of them are not capitalist societies. So, do you remember everything has balance? Selfish, selfless, balance. Selfish is I need to put my own overhead. I need to raise the world number one golfer, and that costs money. I need to install putting greens into his bedroom. I've got, I want a bunker in the back garden, though Gemma and I are negotiating with that right now. <laughs> I guess I'll probably lose that one. And all this costs a load of money, and, I'm, and I am worth it, and my son is worth it, and I'm allowed to do it. And if I, don't, if I don't cover my own overhead, I can't come and do this. So there has to be a selfish interest, but there has to be a selfless interest. I, how does it serve others? Too selfless, no sustainability. Too selfish, what happens? What happens when your vision, or your mission, or your pricing, or your business is too selfish? Yeah, basically what happened is you'll be able to pull in some short-term money, but your customers, your clients, and everyone else, they will turn against you, and yeah, your, um, your margin will reduce to a negative amount and you'll go bust. And look at, you know, you can only hide it for long enough. Look at Madoff, for example. Okay, does anyone have any questions about fair exchange? Now. I, the word I think is really important when we talk about wealth and money is sustainability, i.e. it can grow, it can scale, and it's not maybe exposable to cyclical or counter-cyclical changes or changes in regulation, etc. So balanced fair exchange. Uh, now, if, if, if I said just then to you, put your prices up 20%, and there was still some part of you that was a bit worried about that, then how you can increase your self-worth about that is to also increase the value. So you, you can arbitrarily put your price up 20%, nothing wrong with that. Rolex do that a lot, Odomars, Piguet do that a lot. It's one of the reasons I invest in those watches, because if they're putting their prices up 7% a year on average, that's pushing the second-hand values up. Now, of course, they might make a statement, inflation or whatever, but actually inflation is nowhere near that. And if it's a brand with trust, 
people won't question it, of course, unless it's unfair. If it's 50%, that would be unfair. So increase your fair exchange, but also increase your value. And then you have sustainability. Because if you, if you um, some people will take this literally and go, right, I'm going to double my prices. But if you double your prices and don't increase the value, people may now feel it's unfair, i.e. Uh, it's selfish to you. All right, something to think about. All right, great. Now leverage. What's the word? Leverage. Leverage. So this is, obviously I wrote a book called Life Leverage. So this is a, a personally a, um, a favorite subject of mine. And I find the more you learn about leverage, well, A, the easier, faster, better, quicker your life becomes. B, the less money you need for investments or business models or opportunities. Yeah, I, I think with the ability to leverage networks like the internet and like social media, I think it's easier than ever to leverage. Like you can double leverage or triple leverage because you can leverage the internet by using face by leveraging Facebook, which leverages the internet, and getting a virtual assistant that you leverage to manage your accounts. So that's leverage on leverage on leverage. And you can get an, a podcast or an audio from someone like myself or Dr. John, and you can leverage, for me, a decade, for Dr. John, more than three decades of learning and stu studying and serving our retrospective niches. You can leverage all of that on the internet that the podcast app through iTunes leverages, and you can put it on two times speed. So you can leverage, leverage, leverage. And if I know some of you don't yet aren't really able to do two times speed, do one and a half times speed and warm yourself up for it. <laughs> I know I'm hard to listen to on two times speed. So for me, leverage is the, the final part of the equation, which gives you massive scale. And um, I have studied a lot of the work of Dr. John, and it was through Dr. John that I found the whole book of wealth information. And the commonality, one of the commonalities of the richest people through history, all the way going back through the ages, through inherited wealth, or kings, or dictators, or whoever, everyone, and then you go through Getty and all of these people, is its destiny or desire to serve vast numbers of people. Now, you're not going to become a billionaire selling a few products a year. Now, you may not want to be a billionaire, but leverage creates more vast wealth and money. Just like you buy a property and you leverage the bank and you leverage a JV partner, and you earn 50% of the money that the JV partner put in, and you're leveraging it at 70% from the bank. So all of your property investors in the room, so you get leverage. But I think you want to start thinking about double leverage and triple leverage and leverage on leverage. Now, if you wanted to set up a property event and do a property speech because you'd bought a dozen buy-to-lets, you can use the internet, leverage Facebook, and leverage the progressive community and set up your own event. Or, or another one of the property communities. You can do it on your phone when you're doing something that would normally waste time. So you're stuck in a queue. You're waiting for something. You're traveling somewhere. So that's like four-way leverage. That's why I love audio rather than books. Because 
as valuable as books are, what you've got to do is take time out of your busy day to read. Now, successful people will do it the other way around, and they'll take time out of their successful reading to work. But, whichever way you look at it, if you can triple the speed by learning to speed read, or by getting audio, and you can do audio when you're otherwise in dead time, you get leverage. And I see a real acceleration in leverage. Now, actually, in life, you pretty much get an acceleration of everything because we, because cells divide and, spe and we, start, we super specialize. So the world is so much more specialized now. And I can't see that trend changing anytime soon. And because of that, there's going to be a social media platform for a social media platform. And you know, what first was MySpace, then Facebook, YouTube, and you've got Snapchat, which is like a hybrid of YouTube and Facebook, but it's really quick. And I believe Snapchat was actually created to be used for sensitive information. Or you can record something very quickly to someone and then it disappears. And then of course, um, youths used it for other purposes that they could do on a camera phone to someone else. And then it's not there live on the internet anymore. And they start at the age of five in Peterborough. <laughs> and so all of a sudden there's this Phenomenal. Now, if you have vision on leverage in property, what could you do with these platforms like Snapchat? So for example, imagine you're an estate agent and you build some Snapchat followers and you're able to do a viewing and you Snapchat the viewing. Now all of your followers are going to be able to sit at home and they're going to be able to view the property at home. Now, I interviewed Kevin Kelly, who wrote 1,000 True Fans, who's pretty much regarded as one of the biggest future minds, very much in there with some of the greatest minds on the planet in terms of future leverage. Don't know if you've heard of Peter Diamandis. And I'm going to give you a book recommendation, or an audio recommendation, and that is Get Abundance by Peter Diamandis. And basically, it will just expand your mind. And if you've studied any NLP or any sort of consciousness, they say that the mind once expanded can't go back to its original form. So when you listen to this audio and your mind becomes expanded to the future opportunities, it's very hard for you to have a very localized, oh, there's going to be a crash kind of view. And I got inspired by that, and I got in touch with Kevin Kelly, and I got him on my podcast, and I've done an interview with him on the podcast. So listen to that too. Show me how if you're already subscribed to my podcast, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Okay, if you're not, you've got to work out how to get a podcast. It's on iTunes, The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Now, he is talking about virtual reality. As the, 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 the two next big things are virtual reality and artificial intelligence. So there is going to be a day when you want to do a viewing, and you're going to put your virtual reality headset on, and you're going to be able to view the house like you're there. And then there's going to be companies that are going to give you a holiday experience. And you can't quite afford to leave Peterborough because you're a bit skint. So you're going to put your virtual reality headset on. Even though you're skint and you're not paying my fucking rent, you could afford one of them. Because <laughs> that's pretty normal. <laughs> They've got the shoes, the trainers, the TV, and the virtual reality, and they're not paying my rent. <laughs> so you put the virtual reality headset on, and you're on holiday. Now, what's the biggest growth market in virtual reality right now? And I'm not telling you why I know this. Porn! 
I don't know why I shouted that so loudly. Where's Gemma? Sorry, honey. When I tell Gemma I'm going to be buying a VR headset to view properties, she's going to be, oh, yeah. So you're going to be able to stay in your house and view and experience anything and everything. Now, there, there, is, there are tests where they're putting electrodes on you and you're able to experience shock, smells, and other sensations. Now, people like me are going to do banner ads across the top and the right. Because all marketers, because you know, the free models, freemium, need a marketing platform to generate the revenue, like Google. That was free because they could run Google AdWords platforms. So I should do it the other way around. Facebook is free because then they've got the monetization platform of the, the ads down the right. And then what do they do when you become immune? Slip them in the feed. Now, I went on my banking app about a year ago, and I'm going, scrolling through my payments. And in my payments, in my statement on my bank, it's you qualify for a £15,000 overdraft in my freaking bank statement. And this, thank you for verifying it, it is true. <laughs> well, similar, similar, but... Yeah, and that, now that's what they're doing in Facebook. You scroll down in your feed and this ad's in your feed. Now, 96% of users are, I don't like that ad, shit. Oh, I just want this to be free. Why do I have to be spammed by ads? Well, the ad revenue pays for the engine, which enables you to do it for free. But I would say this to you, embrace the ads. Grow and build your business on that. So when there's virtual reality, the same thing will happen. Because how else are they going to fund expensive technology? So there's going to be a day where everything, deal packaging, you're going to be interrupting people's gaming, and there's going to be your deal packaging pitch or your property seminar pitch or whatever. And this is all leverage. Now, I did a couple of live feeds on this. So the other thing that the futurists predict is the biggest growth area is AI, artificial intelligence, which is, which is ultimately anything that's electronic has a brain. Like your car has a brain. Your fridge, if you're quite wealthy now and in a few years, will just be normal, will have a brain. Your TV has a brain. And of course you can control your heating from your hive app, it's lovely, all my HMOs, minus 16. <laughs> Mark's there, no, minus 20. <laughs> and you're gonna be able to track the exact movements of your tenants. So when they nick all your shit, you can prove it. And what, so you're gonna get what's known as big data, which is you're going to get data on all of your tenants and all of your customers and everything. Now, I'm, I'm making it relevant to property, but of course, whatever business you're in, you're going to get accurate big data on it, which means you're going to reduce your voids because you're going to know there's a 77 statistically percentage chance that this person will only be in your property 7.2 months. But this person, through vetting, they'll be in your property 17.6 months. So everything, your watch, everything's got a brain. Now, of course, some people get Orwellian on my ass. You know, like 1984, Big Brother, oh, we're all doomed. This is an invasion of privacy and all that. Well, if you went on Facebook and you subscribe to any of these social media platforms, unlucky to all of your personal data, it's already gone. And you click the little box. Now, I personally don't have a problem with this because I see the upside is bigger than the downside. 
Now here's something interesting this. There's been quite a war on drugs in America. And some of the big, say Mexican for example, drug lords who are trying to smuggle drugs into America have had a disruption to their business model. And some of the biggest drug lords in Mexico, they have like a five or a $10 million a year budget for research and development. And one of them has created a drone that can get over the border and it can carry a thousand kilos of whatever narcotics they put in it. And so they're, so they're sitting there in their cave, we've got you. Now they're not smuggling drugs in the tunnels anymore and in the, on the airplanes and in the orifices and wherever else it used to go. They're just flying drones straight over. So now the governments have a problem. So what are they doing? They are training birds of prey to take out the drones. <laughs> and I forget what bird of prey it is, but they've trained a bird of prey to take out the drones. So there's always going to be the, the, the juxtaposition between legal, illegal, moral, immoral, beneficial, drawback. Because remember, everything has, sustained, everything has sustained balance. You can't create all that technology and not expect the drug warlords to not embrace it either. So they're on my podcast, listening. <laughs> <laughs> the disruptive drug warlord. All right, now... With Amazon Prime, you buy our books when they launch at 6 a.m., you get them at 11 a.m. But in five years, you buy them at 9 a.m. and a drone flies it and lands on your drone pod. <laughs> Just outside your house with your delivery. Now someone said, what about security? What about if they nick it? Well, that, the drones will land, someone will nick your stuff, so then they'll design a little safe box that the drone can land on and deposit in, and you can't get in, you need them in Peterborough. <laughs> And, off we go. and this, in 20, 30 years, the sky's going to be full of drones. They're already doing it. There's already driverless cars. There's already drones. This is, you know. Now, Peter will probably get it last. <laughs> but so this is all leverage. So sorry if you felt I went a bit off track. But I didn't. If you embrace opportunity and if you embrace any model that can give you more leverage, as simple as a two times speed podcast, or anything that's faster, quicker, better, easier, what happens to your bank balance? It goes up. Because you make something faster, easier, better, more fun for people, fair exchange is created and they will pay for that. And people will pay for experiences, addictions, or they'll pay for problems to be solved, getting rid of pain. And that's relevant for your deal packaging, your HMOs, your service accommodations, and anything and everything else. Okay, so, oh, five minutes early. That's pretty rare, thanks for the feedback. <laughs> All right, so I'll take a question. Anyone have a question? Michael, what's your question, sir? Michael. Hi, Michael. Hello, just intrigued, what would you think about changing people from that side to that side? I just felt everyone needed to stand up and move. Motion creates emotion. I felt like it was good for energy. You know, the jury's out on that, but I felt it was. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your question. Yes, Gary, what's your name? Gary. Hi, Gary. Hi. So in your 10 years, 11 years from Progressive, is there a defining moment for yourself and Mark where this came in and your sort of back balance well grew exponentially? Hmm. No. There's a series of moments that create compounding and momentum. 
now because I got asked this at multiple streams when I did the Sunday Money Mindset session. What's you know, what's that day? Now we watch films and people's lives spiral out of control, you know, and they're picking fag butts off, off the floor and they're going down to KFC and licking people's fingers. <laughs> and then they have an out-of-body experience and everything goes dark except the light on them. And they float and the old spice music comes on and they get an epiphany. And then three months later they're millionaires. That's for biographies, autobiographies and films. The reality, in my experience, is it's a compounded momentum of a series of good decisions and actions and also bad decisions that you learn from. So for me, if I, if I could pick some things, it would definitely be joint ventures. So as you know, all of the 630-ish properties that Mark and I own were his money or Mortgage Express's money or Mum's money or Mark's mum's money or our stepdad, Mark's stepdad's money or whatever else. So for, for me, financial leverage was created through that because I didn't have any deposits. So that's a massive, you know, key thing. My podcast has definitely opened my world. Like we're getting about three and a bit thousand subscribers a day. We have about 400,000 subscribers. And it's given me scale and reach to people that I didn't experience with any other forms of leverage. Of course, that's you know, got me in with some very smart people and so my learning. The great thing about doing my podcast is I feel like I've got the best seat in the house because I get to interview really smart people and I learn as much as I interview. So, you know, a lot of this artificial intelligence and virtual reality and all that, you know, through Peter Diamandis and through Kevin Kelly. And, you know, what I'm always looking to do is um, kind of innovate, but taking innovation in one area and putting it into my world. So, I, I, you know, it's easy to get distracted and go, I want to create AI. Mark definitely wants to create AI. I don't know how well you know Mark, but Mark's vision is that he owns his own island, and then whenever anyone enters his airspace, the ground opens up, and his fighter pilot comes out that he's controlling, and it gets to like a, you know, a few thousand feet, and then out of the beacon speakers, you are entering my airspace, and he's there over the button. And you know, you think I'm joking, but Mark has got these. <laughs> he loves flying, he loves everything about flying. So, yeah, because it's easy to get into all this stuff. Like, you know, with this talk, I'm sure a few loops have been opened. I know Dr. John will open some even deeper loops when he comes on, and you know, all sorts of things like quantum physics and all this knowledge he's got that I haven't yet learned. But if you chase those rabbits and stop what you're doing, it's just a distraction. But if you think, how can I leverage that into what I do? That's innovation in my world. It's not just creating something new. Like Steve Jobs, when he went to the Xerox testing center, looked at this test computer that had a mouse that he'd never seen before, and people were clicking on images rather than typing. And he saw it, and he had a vision of the first graphical interface. But people think Steve Jobs was an innovator. He was an innovative copier. Like all of his technology, virtually all of it, was already in existence in some test center or someone wasn't using it very well. And that's what progressive, through our values of progressive, that's what we're trying to do. Because if you're too innovative, you can be too early. Yeah, so I'll take one more and then I must go. I must go. <laughs> all right, so uh, please give Paul a huge round of applause. Paul's is going to come back on the stage. Thank you very much.